This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Place to be, nah, dude, come over here, this where it's at. Yo, 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 place to be is on my side, dude, because you don't want to be the target when I fly the coop. Nah, place to be is on my side, dude, because you don't want to be the target when I fly the coop. Buenos dias. Man, man, man. We call it the, uh, the place to be. Place to be. Then I shall be. It is contagious. It is the place to be. And we are live each and every Monday. To do, to, to do worse than Josh Richard. Place to Be Nation proudly presents a powerful pair of pro wrestling pundits. It's JT Rosero and Scott Criscolo. And this is the Place to Be Podcast. Place Nation, welcome back to the great episode of the one and only Place Me Podcast. Coming to you here this Monday evening inside the PCBN studios. I am JT, Justin Rosero, joined always by my PIC, Mr. Scott Criscolo. Scott, how are you? Good evening, JR. Good evening, uh, PTB Wrestling Network loyalists. Welcome to episode 307 of the longest-running episodic of motherfucking gold standard. And... Uh, yeah, we are cruising along uh, through the summer. Uh, it was good to see you uh, last week for our usual summer fun and shenanigans. And we're actually going to see each other again in August. I'm very excited. Yes, yes, of course. We'll Always. Keep that a surprise. We'll let you know what that is down the line. But yes, very excited. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Let's uh, roll on. We have a guest with us, as always, as we continue our trek through 2008 here on the Rebooted Timeline. And that is our good friend from way across the globe. He is, of course, your co-host on uh, PTBN Through the Looking Glass. And you hear him on other shows here as well. He is a longtime Nation member, one of our good friends, Mr. Dave Hall. Dave, how are you? I'm doing really well, boys. It might be a nice summer day where you are, but it is a cool winter's afternoon where I'm sitting. So I'm all rugged up and uh, looking forward to journeying into the vault today. The world is such a crazy thing, but here we are. Yes. Yes. Um, All right. As I mentioned, we will be talking Judgment Day 2008. But before we do that, Scott, why don't we head back in time, as we usually do, to open the show to 1994, May of 94. And why don't you tell us what was going on in the world of wrestling at that time? Well, this is going to be very quick, uh, Jr. On okay. this date, uh, May 18th, 1994, the WWF was off. They did not have a show on that day. And uh, WCW was doing a taping, uh, a worldwide taping at the studios in Disney. And all uh, Mr. Land and Mr. Cawthon have, it says, included Terry Funk and Buckhouse Buck with Colonel Rob Parker. And that is it. So a very quiet uh, day in wrestling, May 18th, 1994. WWF was off. WCW had a TV taping. So why don't we dive right in and fire up the herd? I know Dave's been looking forward to this. Very yes, much Dave. So. Uh, we got three three batches of Herb Coons notes for you from the Herb Coons tidbits, as we usually do here. We're going to start on May 5th, 1994. 
In late 1990, a jobber had his neck broken. <laughs> you have to call him a jobber. In a tag match involving the Rockers. The story didn't get talked about too much here at the time. The bottom line was that the match would never air and the jobber planned to sue. Well, that jobber, Chuck Austin, has had his case began in mid-April. The injury occurred when Chuck landed wrong under a Marginetti's leg drop DDT maneuver. He has expressed concern about taking the bump required for that move. Chuck sued $3.8 million in total, claiming that both the Rockers and Titan were negligent in the case. Well, he's able to get around today on crutches. He has to take drugs to combat the pain he's always in. The judge awarded Chuck $26.7 million. Of course, the day have plans to appeal the decision. As has been pointed out, the insurance covers only a small percentage of the verdict, and if they have to pay out, the difference would kill them. Between this decision and the one in favor of Jesse Ventura, one has to wonder about the quality of tight lawyers. Good old Jerry mm. McDivitt struggling here in 1994. <laughs> uh, that is that is a huge settlement. I don't recall exactly what he ended up getting um, if they end up going to a trial, retrial, uh, or arbitration afterward, but um, that is a big that is a big difference in what he asked for. I remember that story um, in the magazines, and that was um, that was certainly a a, a massive, massive um, payout, I'm sure. But don't know that it would have uh, caused them too much damage in the long run. Well, twenty six million at the time probably would have maybe shut them down. Honestly, I don't know. That would that would have been quite a bit, or at least really severely hamstrung them. Uh, Janetti had to pay five hundred grand. And the DF ended up settling out of court for $10 million. So still a pretty good chunk of change for Chuck here. Uh, it was also a pretty big sea change in their presentation from this point. They ended up beginning uh, to use only experienced contracted wrestlers here on out. So I think it's a noticeable change. If you look back at the TV at the time, you start to see like the jobbers that you do see are ones that are generally on a ton you don't get the kind of random off the street type of guys that you would see in the late eighties and early nineties as much. So that definitely seemed to be a, a more of a change where they didn't want to get caught again with someone with no experience taking a bump that they shouldn't be taking and having a serious injury because of it. Kurt Hennig has apparently quit the WWF. His contract runs until December. He'll be unable to work for any other company until that time. WCW supposedly talked to him before his appearance at WrestleMania 10. So the obvious rumors have begun. The Steiners have quit the WWF, upset at the attempts to turn them against each other for a brother versus brother feud, as well as the usual pay complaints. The Steiners decided just to no-show their dates with the promotion. Well, this means that they'll be out of action in North America till December. They'll still be able to work dates in New Japan. Rumor has them wanting to return to WCW, although if money was the prime reason for leaving the WWF, one has to wonder if that would happen. As you recall, the Steiners were originally slated to wrestle the Quebecers at WrestleMania and win the tag titles, but their spot was instead taken by Men on a Mission. Lots of talk that WCW plans to re- resurrect the Four Horsemen this year. Yet again, Diesel's icy title win aired this weekend on Superstars. Diesel begins in the upper echelon of the roster, really soils the mix. With Tuchel Scorpio gone, they were planning to team the much-improved Marcus Bagwell with Jungle Jim Steele. Missy Hyatt's sexual harassment complaint against WCW supervisors got a little press in the old issue of the Star tabloid. Nothing new in there. She was quoted as claiming the incident where her breast popped out of her top and she was caught on film at Starcade. The current affair story seemed to show a blurry image of her wrestling in a black outfit when this happened, which means it wasn't Starcade. During that TVP, she also talked about the TV timeline remaining being the reason for interference, which is a little confusing as well. This confusion is probably meant to leave things unclear since Missy most likely didn't want to advertise when and where this happened. WCW Slamboree 2 on 522.94, tentative lineup, Ric Flair versus Barry Windham, Rick Rude versus Vader. 
Nasty Boys versus Kevin Sullivan and Cactus Jack, Tully Blanchard versus Terry Funk, Steve Austin versus Johnny B. Bad, Steve Regal versus Larry Zabisco, and Dustin Rhodes versus Bunkhouse Buck. This will set up a substitution of Cactus Jack for Dave Sullivan and a TVA angle uh, claiming the Nasty Boys broke Dave's leg. At some point, Larry Zabisco will win the TV title. Good thing all this time limit draw is built to something really meaningful, like a retired wrestler capturing the belt. The printout for the show just lists Vader versus Rude and the Nasty Boys versus Sullivan. The cable ad running here doesn't talk about any matches. Legends slated to appear, Vern Gagne, Dusty Rhodes, Killer Kowalski, The Assassin, Ray Stevens, Red Bastion, Larry Hennig, <clears throat> Ole Anderson, Blackjack Mulligan, Tommy Young, and Lou Thez. King of the Ring on 619 from Baltimore, Bret Hart versus Diesel for the IC title. <laughs> Obviously a, a mix up there. Head Triggers versus Smoking Guns for the tag team titles and an eight-man King of the Ring single elimination tournament. Qualifying matches begin uh, throughout the month. The first match on Superstars is IRS versus Scott Steiner. Clash of Champions on TBS on, in June. Great American Bash 717 from Florida. Uh, Dave, any thoughts on that first batch of notes? Oh, look, he's... Um predominantly updates there it's um it's it's interesting that he 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 had this feeling that they should have that the Bret Hart diesel match should have been for the IC belt would have been fun to see it championship champion for champion but mm. um we and and that was uh, that was a good match when it happened so but um yeah there's nothing sort of sort of over the top that the typical horseman rumors the typical Kurt Hennig yeah rumors it seems to come up almost every time with Herb Maybe Scott, anything? Um, eh, I mean, the normal fare. Um, uh, you know, King of the Ring kind of, you know, going into shape. I was just reading some of this Marty Jannetty stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it. it uh, there's an interesting. It's interesting how the the King of the Ring, uh, you know, matriculated week by week mm-hmm. and that I don't know where that Brett Diesel thing came from. I don't know where the heck he got that from. I mean, I guess he was assuming that Brett was not putting his title on the line. Uh, or is this a typo, which is possible. Uh, it must be just a typo, but yeah, otherwise everything seemed pretty much the same. All right, let's go forward a week to May 13th or May 12th. Rather inside edition ran a story this week on the ultimate fighting championship pay-per-view. The story ran only two and a half minutes. It was a mix of clips of brutal, but non-bloody shots on the two pay-per-views in an interview with a kickboxing champion. who said the shows are too brutal and should be outlawed. The angle of the story was these turners are too violent and they showed lots of disdain toward them. And then with a comment, like another UFC pay-per-view schedule for the fall. How unfortunate. Chuck Austin case hit the observer this past week. Not much else to report over what was said here last week. The jury found the duty was only 90% negligent in the case. So the much reported award of 26.7 million will not be what the company has to pay. The RF now has three weeks to appeal the decision. WCW Slamory 2 in Philly on 522 runs on the cards. Pretty much the same. Legends are the same. Tag title match of a special referee, Dave Schultz, apparently an ex-hockey player with the Flyers. While WCW has planned for Flair to defend against Barry Windham, they never mentioned Barry by name or even hinted that it was him. The plan is to use Barry. To use Barry apparently fell through because Windham didn't have a doctor's release and the company did not want to risk him getting hurt. Some sources are reporting the problem has somehow been solved, that Windham is back in as a challenger. The storyline is that Colonel Parker has arrived for his big stud, Arranged for his big stud to face the champion of the pay-per-view. The day before, they had planned to air a run-in with Wyndham under a hood, destroying Flair. Key of the ring on 619. He still does have Bret Hart versus Diesel for the IC title. Roddy Piper versus Jerry Lawler. Headshrinkers versus Yokozuna and Crush for the tag titles. 
And an eight-man tournament, which looks like this. IRS, who has defeated Scott Siner, to take on Mabel, who defeated Pierre, and Razor Ramon, who defeated Quang. That's all we got so far. We do know from tapings that 123Kid has defeated Adam Baum, and Jeff Jarrett has defeated Lex Luger to enter the tournament, but we don't know where they fit yet. Mabel versus Pierre airs this weekend on the Superstar Cindy. Next Monday on Raw, Bam and Bigelow takes on Sparky Plug. Clash of Champions in June. Tentative lineup will have Steve Austin versus Johnny B. Bad and Great American Bash from Florida on 7-17. So pretty brief batch of notes there. Any thoughts? No, again, it's all pretty straightforward stuff. I found it interesting that the the little line there about sort of the Barry Windham situation and whether they weren't certain he was coming in or not. Is this the, the time that Parker talks about how he's bringing in a, a blonde former world champion, sort of yes. the impression being that he was bringing in Hogan. Yeah, and, this is the um, match. I'm, yeah, yeah, that I'm surprised that. Herb didn't pick up on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely a tease uh, to be Hogan. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, pretty much standard fare. But yeah, I agree with Dave. I can't believe they didn't pick that up either. Yeah, it was definitely, they were definitely trying to he's okay because he was so rumored to be coming in at this time and, and signing so um they were definitely setting that up all right let's move forward a week to may 19th american journal ran a story in the chuck austin case last friday the segment ran almost seven minutes and strongly painted austin as a victim of negligence and incompetence for those that forget austin worked as a jobber in february of 90 teaming with lanny poffo against the rockers according to the DF memo shown on the show after talking with marginality about the rocker dropper austin said he was comfortable performing the move unfortunately in the ring he did not execute the move correctly and was injured they showed the bump on the show with the camera catching it in profile Austin landed a rear on the rear back of his head. Think about how the move and how the bodies would have to be positioned to end up that way. The bump looked brutal. Austin said that the snap was sickeningly loud, likening to a two by four breaking for those nearby. And he knew right away he was seriously injured. His arms still flopped around and his legs were crossed in a somewhat weird way as he was paralyzed from the shoulders down originally. Austin was presumably supposed to roll on his back, acting groggy from the move, so that Shawn Michaels would splash him for the finish. When he didn't, Janetti bent over to grab him and flip him. Janetti got in close, and according to Austin, asked if he could move. Austin told him he was injured and couldn't. Janetti rolled him anyway, with Austin's legs not moving and the position looking very strange. Michael splashed him anyway, and Austin lay in the ring for 20 minutes as medical help arrived. Much has been made on the net about anyone with six months experience being able to take the bump required for this move. Austin had put on some pro wrestling shows at fairs with some of his buddies. The first show was six months prior to this accident. So when asked, he said he had been dabbling with pro wrestling for six months. No one asked him what he could do, what he'd done in the past or a video of him in action. Most expected appeal will drop the award down to something that Titan will be able to afford paying after insurance covers their share. The Rio's Japanomania tour drew uh, low houses for venues that they worked. Jacques Rougeau's last date with the RF is June 25th. There's some talk about Rougeau's beginning, Rougeau beginning a pro golf career. Before returning to the RF for his most recent run as a Quebecer, he had been running a golf course. He's even talked about the RF sponsoring him. Always working, Jacques Rougeau. <laughs> WCW Slambury 2 on May 22nd in Philly. Same card we've been talking about. There's talk they may add Buff, uh, Buff Marcus Bagwell versus Ron Simmons. Uh, and also debut Sherry Martell as Simmons' manager. We'll have some feel this weekend whether Barry Windham is on again. As he pointed a flare on this pay-per-view, they had planned to air a run-in with Windham attacking Flair. Even if it airs, they may try and explain it away on Sunday. So we'll probably just have to wait for the pay-per-view. Melser did report that Wyndham is not expected to make it for the show, but things could change quickly. Melser said that someone mentioned they were considering Terry Funk into the match with Ric Flair. And how about this? Haku was debuted at a taping as Colonel Parker's bodyguard Ming. Perhaps they're desperate enough they'll use him as Flair opponent. 
Also, I've been told that Terry Funk and Kurt Hennig have both reached deals to work for WCW. I'd be surprised if Hennig can get out of his contract before it runs out later this year. But stranger things have happened. In any case, the of fans hoping that Hennig would return will be saddened. I don't know any details about Terry's deal either, but apparently he extends past a one-shot appearance. It probably has something to do with his working arrangement with ECW. Mills also reports that Rick Rude and Nasty with Jerry Sags were injured a couple weeks back. Rude has back and neck problems, and Sags has shoulder trouble. Hopefully this doesn't affect the pay-per-view. There's some talk that Hulk Hogan will be appearing as well. King of the Ring on June 19th, Bret Hart versus Diesel for the WF title. The IC title will not be on the line. Mm-hmm. Roddy Pipe versus Jerry Lawler. Head Triggers versus Yokozuna and Crush. And the King of the Ring tournament, IRS versus Mabel. Razor Ramon versus Bam and Bigelow. Jeff Jarrett versus the 1-2-3 Kid. The match of the first four entrants have already aired. Jarrett versus Luger is on this weekend, and Kid versus Bomb should air the weekend after. The two remaining spots will be filled by matches airing on Raw. Clash of Champions in June with Austin versus Johnny B. Bad, and Hulk Hogan expected to make his first in-arena appearance on the show, Great American Bash, on July 17th from Florida. So that's our final installment of Herb. Any final thoughts before we move along? I'm just picturing Jacques Rougeau winning the U.S. Masters, wearing that green <laughs> jacket, and Vince McMahon bringing him back as the as the golfer. As and he always wanted a golfer gimmick, and uh, yeah, that's all. I just just because he owned or worked a golf course made him want to go after a professional golf career. I'm mm-hmm. just Herb's a bit of a reach there. Mm, I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, no, everything else pretty cut and dry. Got the title thing fi- you know, figured out and. You know, everything else pretty good, pretty pretty straightforward. Jacques is always working, always yep. working. Yes, he is. I swear, I swear he's always working. Also, talking about I swear is all for one. The number one song in the nation this week in 1994 leads us to Scott Criscola's Vintage Pop Culture Corner. I swear by the moon and the stars in the skies. And I swear, like the shadow that's by your side. I see the questions in your eyes. I know what's uh, Thank you, uh, JR. And yes, uh, all for once, uh, I Swear, which was an earworm for a decent hunk in the mid-90s, was your number one song in the nation this week in uh, 1994, the week ending May 21st. Number two, Ace of Bass, which was number two on our last episode, JR, almost mm-hmm. a month ago. Uh, number three, I'll Remember from Madonna from the movie With Honors, which was on our Billboard movie list uh, two weeks ago. Prince, Most Beautiful Girl in the World at four. Bump and Grind by R. Kelly, thankfully dropping. It's now five. Baby, I Love Your Way from the movie Reality Bites uh, from Big Mountain. Return to Innocence by Enigma at seven. Mm, 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 by Crash Test Dummies at eight. Uh, I'm Ready by Tevin Campbell at nine. And You Mean the World to Me, one of my favorite songs. You Mean the World to Me by Tony Braxton at ten. Uh, I'm going to guess, Mr. Hall, that uh, the special top 10 list you've brought with us tonight from all the way in the frozen tundra of Australia, uh, I bet you that you probably don't even have half the songs on this list. Look, I swear, I swear was very big down here and it was it was right at the top at the top as well um, of our charts. And and it's it's certainly something that um, 
was a very big song down here in Australia. Uh, an interesting song that was in our top 10 charts down here in Australia. I'm not sure whether it would have charted or how it would have done in the US. Um, is an Australian grunge band called Silverchair and their single Tomorrow, uh, yep. which was rising up the charts in in, the, mm-hmm. in Australia at the time. So, yeah, it's but, but pretty similar lists overall. Mm, okay. Yep. A lot of uh, the usual, you know, mid '90s uh, R&B, hip hop kind of soft, uh, soft songs there. All right. So we'll go from the radio to the big screen and take a look at what was uh, uh, in the movies on this weekend, ending uh, the 20th of May, 1994. Uh, we have 15 movies here. Jeez. Uh, Sugar Hill at 15. Ace Ventura: Pet Detective at 14. Philadelphia at 13, Schindler's List at 12. Oh, that movie's still cranking. Uh, this is very interesting. I, I don't even want to know what this movie's about. Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Hmm. Yeah. Did you get the right list? Uh, it seems like it, uh, I think. Uh, Clean Slate at 10, You So Crazy at 9, No Escape, which was number one a month ago, at least on our last episode, down to uh, uh, 8. Three Ninjas Kick Back at seven with honors, which was number four uh, last time, down to six. Four Weddings and a Funeral at five. Crooklyn at four. God, these movies are so 90s. Uh, when a Man Loves a Woman, which very depressing movie. That was at three. Uh, not a depressing movie. The Crow, although there was depressing death on the shooting of that movie, but The Crow at number two. And Maverick at number one. No, not that Maverick. Uh, that would not happen until way later, of course, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, who was in that, actually? Let me take a look. Uh, Maverick. Let's see. Uh, that came out uh, around this, well, this week. Let's see who was in that. Was that James Garner? Let me see. Yeah, it was Maverick Mel Gibson. Was, uh, Mel Gibson. Yeah, Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster, and James Garner, uh, a Western comedy film. I'm going to find that... Uh, I'm going to type this other one in now. Even cowgirls get the blues. <laughs> get the even cowgirls. Oh, my God. Hold on. Even cowgirls get the blues. Here we go. Uh, all right. It was a 1993 American romantic comedy drama based on Tom Robbins, 1976 novel. It was directed by Gus Van Zant. So it is weird. And stars Uma Thurman, Lorraine Bracco, Angie Dickinson, Pat Morita, Keanu Reeves. John, I don't even remember this movie. John Hurt. And Rain Phoenix. I don't remember any of the. I don't remember this movie at all. <laughs> you know, the, it's weird. Um, okay, uh, Dave. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there were some films that are the same, but I'm sure there were some films specifically catered to your country that probably made money over others. Yeah, uh, yeah. Look, our our top our top few movies. Four Weddings and a Funeral was a massive um, hit down here in Australia. It, it was. Um, at this point, it would have been number one for three weeks, and it'd go on to be number one for another three weeks after that. So it um, it really uh, did a lot of big business. Uh, Maverick was on the on the rise up. Um, it was um, it was number two already. Um, number three was Pool Runnings, uh, that great winter Olympic movie, mm-hmm. and um, and 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 coming up behind in our top ten is what is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, Paul Hogan's Lightning Jack. So <laughs> the Australian element in there, but, oh, gee, it was a bad film. Lightning Jack. Sounds like a guy in a Mid-South. 
Well, that's Savannah Jack. Sorry. <laughs> there was a guy in Mid-South called Savannah Jack. Pretty funny. Uh, so there you go. So, um, and I forgot Crooklyn was a, a Spike Lee uh, film. Mm-hmm. I just double checked that just to play. Do you remember that movie, JR? Crooklyn? I don't know if I've ever seen it. I remember like the ads for it at the time right. and whatnot. But Did you see The Crow? Uh, I don't know if I've ever seen The Crow. Good movie. Sequel's not bad. TV series isn't too bad either, actually. Uh, let's see. There was one uh, playoff, uh, NBA playoff game on this date. It was game five of the Eastern semifinals and probably one of the best rivalries of the decade between the New York Knicks and the Chicago Bulls. This game was at the Garden. The Knicks won by a point, 87 to 86, and the Knicks led the series three games to two. Meanwhile, game two of the uh, Eastern of the Western Conference Finals uh, at the Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, the Canucks uh, beat the Maple Leafs four to three to even that series at a game apiece. Uh, Major League Baseball, as we mentioned, Jr. will enjoy it now because as we get to later in our calendar year, we're not going to have much of it or any of it for that matter. So uh, the games on this date, May 18th, 1994. Uh, let's take a look at our teams here. The uh, Yankees got blown out in Minnesota by the Twins, 13 to five. The Mets lost at home to the Marlins, four to three. Okay. Uh, the Yankees, but the Yankees though leading. Yeah, really. Well, where are they at this point? Oh, they're above 500 anyway. Uh, the Yankees were leading the East at 26 and 12, a game ahead of the Red Sox, uh, and three ahead of the Orioles. The uh, White Sox led the Royals by a half game in the Central. The AL West, the four teams, still all under 500, but Texas was now in first place by three games over uh, the Angels. The Braves led the East by three over the Expos, and the uh, Reds led the Central by four over the Cardinals, and the Dodgers had jumped ahead over the Giants by a game in the NL West. So there we go there. And uh, finally, uh, this is a pretty big deal. For JR and I, I don't know about you, Dave. I'm not sure if you were a fan of this show, but uh, this specific week, JR, in 1994, 90210 was off. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we are going to shoot ahead to the following week because it was a two-parter, because it was uh, probably one of the most important episodes in the history of the program, and that was the season finale of uh, season four, and it was titled. Mm. Do you remember the title? Uh, no, I do not. Mr. Walsh goes to Washington. Oh, of course, yes. Okay, yes. yes. Uh, well, right. that that is I should have known because I drew a blank. But that is one of my favorite episodes of all time yes. um, because obviously it's uh, the end of Brenda, which is sad, but yes. it's also uh, the beginning of Brandon and Kelly because she accompanies him on this trip to Washington D.C. for the mock governance stuff, and yep. uh, they end up hooking up and starting the relationship. So that is true. Yes, Brandon travels to Washington, D.C. with the task force where two women, both Claire and Lucinda, mm-hmm. grapple literally for his attention. Meanwhile, Brenda is offered by Randolph the opportunity of a lifetime, the chance to spend the summer studying theater uh, at the Royal Academy in London. At the CU Mardi Gras Carnival, David seeks to meet and impress pop star Kenneth Babyface Edmonds and his recording manager, Ariel, guest star Kari Wurr. With his keyboard music, Steve becomes upset when he runs into his former girlfriend, Celeste, at the carnival, who's now with John Sears. Yeah. John fucking Sears. Remember him? Uh, oh, yeah. Elsewhere, Kevin and Suzanne get married in a semi-formal ceremony where he persuades Dylan to cut out any outside investment in their business offer. Also, Andrea goes into labor and gives birth to a baby girl born prematurely by C-section. In part two, Kelly travels to Washington to meet Brandon, and they spend a romantic day together to get away from both Claire and Lucinda, still hounding him as well as the stress of the travel. And they end up, as uh, JR said, uh, 
Yeah, getting a little comfy. Before leaving for London, Brenda ends up spending her last night in California in Dylan's bed. Oh. Mm. Donna catches David in a compromising position with Ariel after mm-hmm. catching them having sex in a limo. God, this episode's loaded. Um, Donna breaks up with David and throws him out of the beachfront apartment. Steve continues to clash with Sears over Celeste's affections. Meanwhile, Andrea and Jesse experience the joys and fears of parenthood for their premature daughter. Jim becomes angry at Dylan for making such a rash decision to finance Kevin's chemical company all by himself, which he fires Dylan as his financial holder. The next day, Dylan goes to a bank and gives Kevin full power of attorney control over his money, but it is revealed in a climactic twist to the viewers that both Kelly and Jim were correct. Kevin Mm -hmm. and Suzanne are career criminals and con artists who have been plotting this whole time to steal all of Dylan's inheritance money and flee to Brazil with it. Erica figures out, Erica, of course, is the daughter, figures out what is going on at LAX. She attempts to leave a note for Dylan to find, but the note gets lost when Erica drops it in the ladies' room. And, of course, as uh, JR mentioned, the farewell to the Shannon Doherty era of 90210. And the only way you could watch this episode is if you own it on DVD, like I do, because because of Babyface Edmonds, this episode is not streaming. That's wild. The big season finale yes. uh, is not streaming. It's crazy. It's also the end of an era because it's the end of Kelly Taylor's uh, long locks. She's got the short hair when they come back. Yes. In the next season. So yes. I'm not a fan of that. Uh, but it's a great episode. And there's a great podcast that covers all Beverly Hills 90210. It's called 90210-so. Yes. It has its own feed at bh90210so.podbean.com. Myself, Tim Capel, and our rotating cadre of guests work through the history of Beverly Hills 90210 chronologically. And uh, season two is now underway on this podcast. We're excited to be into the second season, which is really when the show, to me, starts to feel like the show. Yes, um, I agree. So, uh, yeah, it's exciting to be there. And it's exciting to have all the content we have on the North-South Connection. <laughs> A lot of wrestling content, of course, much of it evergreen, but also some current day stuff as well. We have a new show each and every day. Some of it's prestige audio, like the wrestler that was with Aaron George where he profiles a different Dodie uh, wrestler's pay-per-view career every episode. He's been through uh, some some really good luminaries, and he just does a great job. It's, it, there's no one that does solo podcasts like Aaron. Just does an awesome job, makes them fly by, and keeps them super entertaining. We also have content that covers uh, across all different eras, whether it's a ruthlessly aggressive era, whether it's mid-'90s Monday Night Wars or mid-'90s ECW. We really run the gamut and uh, plenty of content, too, around this year's stretch project, the greatest duty wrestler ever revisited. We have stuff dropping monthly on that, too. So check us out. A lot of good stuff on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. Scott, what do you got going on? Uh, as always, uh, you can always check out All Reliable, place to be.pobby.com for the PTV Wrestling Network. Uh, plenty of shows that have dropped over the past few weeks, including one that I did with our esteemed guest this evening. And uh, so check that out. Newest episode of uh, Through the Looking Glass, which dropped a couple weeks ago. And check out all the great stuff we have, including all of our great monthly and bi-weekly shows, NWA Crock and Roll, uh, Highway to the Impact Zone, Talking WCW, PTB NXT, and all the great, of course, our show here, JR. Main event, all the other great stuff. And uh, there you go, place to be.podbean.com. Of course, the rest of the quad, the PTB Pop Experience, and, of course, the Jenny position, which you can catch, what is it, every Wednesday on the uh, on the North-South feed. So, Quadapods, we uh, own the ether. Uh, Dave, anything you want to talk about before we move on? 
I think you've covered it all. Um, you know, as you said, I just, I just want to, I just want to plug again uh, through the Looking Glass. Uh, me and me and Scott, it's, um, it's dropping monthly, and and we're having a, we're having a ton of uh, fun with that, with that yes, series. So, absolutely, really encourage you to, uh, to, to jump in and and just hear how history could have been a little bit different. All right. Well, let's find out about some other history uh, a little bit further into the future from where we've just been hanging out. We're going to head back to May of 2008 because it is time to talk some Judgment Day. May 18, 2008, from the Quest Center in Omaha, Nebraska, 11,324 in attendance, a buy rate of 252,000. This is the, uh, I'm sorry, that's the total buys, not buy rate. There's the 10th event in the Judgment Day chronology in Nebraska's second ever pay-per-view. Uh, Dave, do you remember the first? Uh, not offhand. Scott? Oh, that is, of course, uh, 12 years ago. April mm-hmm. of uh, 1996, Good Friends, Better Enemies. That's right. That was also in Omaha, but in more of a barn <laughs> setup than this arena <laughs> yes. here. Yes. <laughs> uh, on April 28th, Dave Taylor and Balls Mahoney were released. Ball sent packing back to Asbury. On May 1st, Santino Morella arrested for DUI at 3 a.m. in Tampa. Morella's blood alcohol level was 0.06, which is below the limit. On that same day, Ron Simmons was inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame. A day later, on May 2nd, Duty ran a show in Montreal, Quebec. The return of Duty to Canada for the first time since Chris Benoit's death 11 months earlier. On 5-5, Gregory Helms was involved in a bar fight in Smithfield, North Carolina. Dustin Narin was arrested in conjunction with the incident and charged with assault. With assault. The next day aired ECW's 100th episode. Pretty crazy. Mm. Uh, two days later, Terry Wilson was released on May 8th, and on May 9th, Nick Balea, son of Terry Hurricane Hogan, if you listen to our last episode, was sentenced <laughs> to eight months in jail, five years probation, and 500 hours of community service after pleading guilty in the vehicle wreck that left his friend John Graziano on life support. I remember uh, that we one. Had one. Yes, that was a sad story. And that was all during yeah. the Hogan Knows Best era, too, I think. So that was like yeah, a lot. It was. Going it, was. it was. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking of that show earlier today, and because uh, that was like the early days of the reality TV stuff, and just like how, what a downturn Hogan has taken, uh, just critically in the eyes of um, the public since that time. Obviously, with all the both the love sponge, love sponge stuff, and the tape that leaked. Mm-hmm. But at that time, he was really having quite the renaissance with Hogan Knows Best. Like there were a lot of people into that show. Um, I, but I think I think it was I think it was what happened with his son that almost started the downhill spiral because right that that sort of put some pressure on what they could do and then it wasn't long after that 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 his wife decided that it was time to call mm-hmm. it quits. Yeah, mm-hmm. that show was really the peak for them. <clears throat> once that ended is when they once and that other stuff happened is and the show ended is when kind of things started to definitely turn. But he did have that renaissance with that show. All right. Uh, well, you had one dark match tonight as Hardcore Holly and Cody Rhodes defended the tag team titles against Santino Morella and Carlito. Uh, 
And that brings us in to our event, Judgment Day. We get a very basic opening video. We hit the top feuds with a Judgment theme. Jim Ross and the King welcome us in to the 10th ever Judgment Day, set up our big night ahead. And we open with a pretty big match as John Cena takes on John Bradshaw Layfield to open the show. Scott, you want to tell us how we got here? Uh, yes, uh, just to clarify, uh, remember we have two pairs of tag titles, so the Hardcore Holly Cody Rhodes was for the World Tag Team titles, yes, which is the Raw, Raw Tag yep. Team Champions, because the other belts will be defended in a little bit, we'll get to that shortly. Uh, of course, JBL has mentioned, uh, the first person eliminated from the Backlash main event, uh, for the World title, he was eliminated after tapping out to the STFU. It was announced on the May 5th Raw that JBL would face Cena at Judgment Day. On the May 12th Raw, Cena lost to Orton. With JBL as the guest referee, Cena had Orton in the FU, and JBL kicked him in the face and then did a fast count to give Orton the win. So we're getting, we're getting a, a, a rebirth or a reigniting of that uh, 05 feud that culminated, of course, with uh, John Cena's first ever world title win, uh, God, three years earlier mm-hmm. at WrestleMania 21, which seemed like a zillion years ago at this point. It's very strange, but uh, here we are. All right. Very odd, very wild to see Cena opening up a pay-per-view at this point. But it's a big match, a lot of hype. Uh, JBL pushed right back up the card since returning. He blames Cena for that loss of backlash, like you said. Pretty big pop for Cena here. Good to have him against a pure heel. Kind of catch the crowd hot at the open with him. So maybe it's a shrewd way to get the the crowd behind him. We ease in with some lockups and feeling out as JBL grabs a headlock and chops away. Cena comes right back. We get an STF attempt, but JBL gets to the ropes, goes in on the arm, targeting that rehabbed bicep. JBL uses the post and then strikes to batter the bicep in the shoulder, mixing in a swinging neck breaker and a hammerlock and a cross arm breaker. Methodical pace as usual for JBL, going for covers and hammering the arm. Cena tries to punch back into control, but JBL clips the arm to keep control. Cena pushes through the pain for a flurry, including a blockbuster, but he misses a top rope leg drop and JBL's back on top. The crowd turns on Cena a bit as we edge through JBL's offense. We get a fight over a suplex with Cena on the apron, ending with JBL dropping Cena across the top rope. JBL kicks and punches and goes to a bear hug and a body scissors. He twists his focus to the back instead of the shoulder. JBL goes to full Nelson as well, breaking out all the basics. Cena powers out of the hold and goes through an FU, but he was too weak to pull it off. We go back to a body scissors, but Cena powers out as well. Again, he misses a charge and JBL kicks him down to take back over. Lots of teases here. Cena blocks a short arm clothesline and hits the FU for the win out of nowhere. This is a fine, old-school, kind of classically worked power match. Maybe not the best choice for an opener because it's a little slow. Uh, putting in that slot allowed the crowd to be hotter for Cena. It felt like a big deal, but then working that methodical match kind of cut against that that idea. Cena did show off some fun power offense, and it all made sense. It just wasn't very exciting. JBL dominated until the end. Cena gets a flash pin show. He only needs that one strike and that one opening to win. Uh, so, Dave, I, I this is a fine finish. It was an okay opener. Uh, I don't know if it's the best use of Cena or not, but it's fine. Two and three quarters for me. Um, yeah, I um, I think I've got some similar sentiments. I was I was surprised when I saw Cena come out for the opening match, but it but being up against JBL, like you said, it really galvanized the crowd behind him. Being against a pure heel, JBL can draw heat and JBL can keep heat. He's one of the few guys that you just know the crowd will support Cena in this case. And and you noted that, you know, I think the crowd, I think we're getting bored more than turning on Cena at any point in the, in the match because they gave him a good response when he, when he won. Um, mm-hmm. I found it interesting when, um, 
when Cena ran, ran into the ring post and immediately uh, JR and, and, and the King sort of asked the question, can JBL exploit the arm? And the first thing he did after that was hit a neck breaker. So I sort of, uh, I found interesting that JBL sort of, he was varying up the, the attack and it, it's probably more ring work and more mat work than I've ever seen from JBL. I was, I was impressed with that, but it was, it was really slow um, it looked at one point like Cena went to try and power bomb out of one of the moves, but over, lost his balance or trying to lift up the weight of JBL sort of caused him to lose balance and, and didn't quite hit it the way they were after. But you know, the, the FU out of nowhere, really, it really caught me by surprise. I was waiting for Cena mm-hmm. to do the comeback and, and it didn't happen. And I think that was another thing that didn't help with the crowd because you get accustomed to certain things happening in matches. And while, while it's, um, it's nice to have one of these out of nowhere moments where, Hey, this match can finish at any time, which they always talk about. I do think it kept the crowd out of the match because I think they were waiting for the comeback. I think they were waiting for the Cena's patented offense to be able to cheer and maybe even do some booze and just get them into the match. And it just never came. And, I, I, I'm a little bit lower on this match. I, I gave it a two. Um, I, I I like a lot of your sentiment, Dave. I gave it a two and a half. Uh, your match uh, length. Uh, I know this is pretty long. Let me take a look here. Uh, I think it was like, was it 15 minutes? Let me see. Uh, let's see. Uh, it was uh, 15.03. Uh, I didn't think the match needed to be this long. I I, I definitely feel like this was kind of a forced match or a forced feud just to give the two of them something to do. Um, Obviously, this match does not have the sizzle uh, that their match had, their two matches had three years earlier. Uh, Obviously, the the match at Mania 21, but most definitely the match Mm -hmm. exactly three years earlier at Judgment Day 05, which was that awesome uh, I Quit match they had in, was it Nashville? Nashville or Minneapolis, one of the two. Uh, I mean, the I Quit match where he... Yeah, you know, Quit was Minneapolis, him. yeah. Yeah, Minneapolis. They were going to burn him with the with the truck pipe or whatever. Uh, that was pretty... That match is awesome. That's actually... I think that match is on my my uh, GWWE Top 100. Um, I feel like this match was just pretty much uh, filler to give Cena something to do and make JBL kind of still feel like he's part of the gang. Um, having said that, it didn't suck but I just didn't have that energy that an opener needed to be. So um, I, I feel like it was just to give the two of them something to do. Um, but I mean, it was fine again, two and a half JR. Uh, but I mean, I wasn't going crazy over it again. I think it's, I think these are, these are a lot. We talked about this with uh, Sue's two weeks ago. I feel like uh, that Cena's still got his training wheels on because we all know that he probably came back a little earlier than he, than he meant to. In January, just to get that mm-hmm. pop at the Rumble. But I feel like every match, he's, think about it. Two matches, he's had four pay-per-view matches since. He had him and Orton at No Way Out, which was okay. But again, I feel like he was protected. Then he had back-to-back multi-guy matches, including last month at Backlash, where he only lasted, you know, a few just a few minutes for him. And then here, again, a lot of grinding, a lot of mat stuff that was kind of protecting his upper body. He wasn't doing a lot of strikes and stuff. So it's evident that Cena's probably like at 88, 89% right now. And, and this shows. So again, not a terrible match, but not, 
nothing earth shattering and, and not definitely what they had three years earlier. All right, Jared on the King reset us a bit as we see King William Regal up in the luxury box watching the show with a sneer. Cole and Foley then talk about SmackDown's night ahead. They plug our mobile poll, asking fans to vote on who will win the vacated world title. Mike Adam Lee and the Taz then talk about the tag team title match to come featuring the ECW champion. We then get a highlight video showing the Miz and Morrison dirt sheet segments where they rip on Punk and Kane. Of course, the dirt sheet had really kind of taken hold and become <laughs> a pretty popular segment on the website, which are spurring on Miz and John Morrison's tag team. Uh, who have subtly heated up the tag division. And Scott, do you want to tell about this next match where they are taking on CM Punk and Kane? Indeed, they are the uh, WWE Tag Team Champions, mm-hmm. which of course means they're the SmackDown Champions. On the May 6th ECW, World Champion Kane and CM Punk defeated Chavo and Bam Neely with Morrison and Miz providing guest commentary. On the May 9th SmackDown, it was announced that Kane and Punk would face Miz and Morrison for the titles tonight. On the May 13th ECW, the Miz pinned Punk with the reality check after avoiding the go-to-sleep after the match, Morrison congratulated Miz on the stage. That same night, Morrison pinned ECW world champion Kane in a non-title match. After the match, Morrison and Miz laid out Kane and Punk as the show came to a close. So a little bit of little bit of build as we get to this match. All right. Miz and Morrison, like I said, have really heated up the tag division. Stabilized the champs. They're delivering some good comedy. Punk and Kane team up here after being kind of buddies in late 07 as well. Feels like a slight step off the climb um, for Punk. You know, he's off really out of the picture in ECW. Money in the bank holder, but at least it's a title match for him. Thought Adam Lee held his own here early. Does a good job with the basics. Adds in some comparison. Seems suited okay right now. Taz is pulling him along. Punk is toting the money in the bank case. Punk and Miz start off. Punk works him over some quick strike offense. Keeping him locked up as Miz tries to wriggle free. Kane tags into a pop. They beat on Miz together. Kane throws him around. Morrison catches a tag, but Kane abuses him too. Even he got a nice low drop kick for two, followed by a sick backbreaker. Punk tags in and gets in a couple holes as Adam Lee calls him CM, which always makes me laugh. <laughs> CM with the drop kick. Morrison escapes and tags CM, who starts to work the neck. Punk slugs free and tags Kane, who cleans house on Miz, but the champs are able to break him down by targeting his banged up knee. They start to hammer away. The champs quick tag and beat on that knee, working a chin lock as well. Uh, they have a pretty good swarm attack. Punk gets a hot tag and most are both champions at with a flurry after a very short heat segment. Punk takes to the air is mowing through both with ease looking pretty good. Miz hooks Punk's leg during a GTS, but Kane comes out and chokes Sam's Miz on the floor, but that allows Morrison to seek up from behind and finish Punk with a roll of the dice. Uh, this is fine. It was a little clunky. I never really get that smooth tag flow. It felt a little all over the place, especially with Miz and Morrison kind of uh, lack of targeted attack. I thought Punk looked good, but again, he takes the fall. I think this could have been the time to do a DQ or maybe something sneaky. Uh, it is a big win from Mizzen Morrison, but Punk's going to get out of here. <laughs> He's going to get to real issues. I know the draft is coming, so hopefully that'll save him. But right now, it's like, all right, we're kind of just treading water. He won the money in the bank, and now here he is taking losses because we got to protect Kane, of course. Uh, I think I think this is one time I'd advocate for doing a DQ, Scott. I went two and a half on the match. Uh, but I, th- I think we could have escaped or maybe Miz and Morrison do the chicken shit, you know, run away and keep the titles thing. It, whatever could have worked for them. Yeah, I gave it uh, I gave it two and a half. Um, and just continuously seeing punk like this is just not is not great. Uh, your match time uh, seven twelve. Uh, yeah, I, I don't understand what the hell we're still having punk spin his wheels 
Um, I do like the fact that that the only reason I'm happy, I shouldn't say happy, the only reason I feel like it makes sense to keep Punk on ECW is it does kind of make things a little sneaky with the briefcase. He could kind of pop up on SmackDown here and there and go, hey, guys, look what I got. And go to Raw and be like, look, guys, look what I got. You know, and 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 bounce around a little bit before actually sticking him to a brand. Uh, having said that, uh, I don't know why he got pinned. I thought that was kind of dopey. Um, I know Kane's a champion, but, you know, it's fucking Kane. So, I mean, whatever. Uh, Miz and Morrison are great heels, and I feel they're good. They're good heel champions, but we could have done with some kind of chicken shit schmozzy crap at the end, mm-hmm. Dave. Um, and so what are your thoughts? Um, uh, two and a half. What are your, what's your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on punk in this current situation? Yeah, I'm going to echo the thoughts that you guys have put out there. I do not understand why punk was in this situation. I don't understand why Kane was in this situation that they've put the ECW champion and the money in the bank holder in a tag match and they don't want them to win and it just it felt like it devalued both of them um mm-hmm. and it and it really i really felt for punk because i mean he looked he had some really good innovative offense he and morrison when they were in the ring together really lit it up they were they were putting on some good good counters and and some good um good little series of moves and i thought this is this is impressive. It actually sort of made me realize how hey, this is sort of why they like these two together. But um, why Punk had to take the the pin for? I mean, it's just it's just so sad. We, we talk we talk in the present day about how they often misuse the money in the bank winner, and they seem to do all these mm-hmm. losses. But we're getting it right back here in 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 two thousand and eight. I mean, P- Punk has just been completely misused since he won the money in the bank. I don't think either he or Kane should have been in this match. And then the lo- the logic of it, I wanted, I was waiting for Taz to maybe make some comment. Why would Kane tag with the Money in the Bank holder? Because at any time, Punk could have, you know, cashed in his Money in the Bank on Kane right there and then, if he wanted to. I know that the ECW title was not the same level, but they had certainly tried in the in the past twelve months to sort of put it out there that. Hey, it's one of the world titles. You could cash in your money in the bank or your Royal Rumble shot at one of these titles. So, look, it, it, it was a shame. It was good. I gave it two and a half as well. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed that it was quite rapid fire. Like, there was no slowdown heat segment that Punk and Morrison uh, – sorry, Morrison and Miz kept mm-hmm. tagging in and out pretty quickly and and really kept the action moving. So, you never had that, that moment to – to feel like it was slowing down, which I think was a really good thing to do after the first match. Agreed. Mm. All right. We get a video package for our next match. And that is Shawn Michaels taking on Chris Jericho. And this has escalated quickly, Scott. Uh, How did we get here from backlash? Well, it continues from the great, I mean, just great stuff going on here Mm -hmm. on the April 28th raw uh, Jericho hosted the highlight reel where he presented the award for best actor in sports entertainment (laughs) to Shawn Michaels (laughs) for faking a knee injury the night before a backlash. Michaels came to the ring and confessed he was really hurt, but Jericho continued to brag about Michaels' acting ability. That Friday on SmackDown, Mick Foley conducted an interview with Batista regarding his match with Shawn Michaels at Backlash and the comments made by Jericho on Raw. Batista commented that he hoped Michaels really was hurt and not faking because if he was faking, Batista would legit hurt him. On the May 5th Raw, Jericho met with William Regal and further argued Shawn Michaels wasn't hurt. 
Regal then made a match for Jericho would team with Michaels later in the show against Morrison and Miz. Jericho pinned Morrison with the lion salt after Morrison sustained Michaels' super kick. Michaels was never legally in the match. Immediately after the fall, Michaels limped backstage, leaving Jericho alone in the ring. And finally, on the May 12th Raw, Jericho did an in-ring promo where he said following the previous week's tag team match with Michaels, he believed Michaels' injury was legit, and he apologized for all his accusations. He said he would understand if Michaels wanted to call out, call off their scheduled match at Judgment Day and would even go to Regal himself to ask for it to be canceled. Michaels came out selling the injury and admitted he wasn't hurt, and Jericho was right. Jericho then argued the inch, argued he knew Michaels wasn't hurt and continued to claim Michaels was merely trying to trick him until Michaels hit the super kick and again repeated that he wasn't hurt. I, 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 we, haven't had, we haven't seen this much Sean mm-hmm. mind-fucking in a while. It's actually, it's actually very entertaining. <laughs> Yeah, that's really well done. Uh, Jericho's completely back on track. He's got the icy belt on his waist. He's trolling Michaels over the retirement of Flair. He's sandbagging, you know, Michael sandbagging Batista. He's still involved in all this. Uh, this has all been just so well done. We got a big pop for Sean. He seems fine after the knee injury. He's been kind of running, you know, the running piece of the angle. Jericho goes right at the leg and Sean fends him off. Good mind games, like you mentioned, Scott. Sean's throwing all kinds of smoke on the knee. Jericho's trying to figure out what's right. We keep going back and forth to Jericho trying to get to the knee, but Sean takes him down and hooks a Native American deathlock for Jim Ross. Jericho breaks it. We reset as Michael's mind games are working, and Jericho's on the verge of snapping. He's all off kilter, runs into a back elbow, gets trapped in a hanging cross arm breaker as Sean is targeting the left arm. Jericho reverses a whip and shoots Sean hard to the corner, and suddenly he's in control of the match. They end up battling on the top rope, ending in a Sean front face superplex, throwing Jericho to the mat. But Sean he's knees as he tries to flying elbow. Jericho pounces on the ribs now. He starts to hammer at them and then smashes into a tight back suplex. An abdominal stretch into a gut buster. <clears throat> the crowd tries to rally Sean here as Jericho keeps beating on the ribs. Sean counters a bulldog and flings Jericho into the ropes. Jericho comes right back and traps Sean on the walls. The crowd is buzzing as Sean scraps to the ropes and escapes. Jericho ends up on the apron and Sean follows and clobbers him with sweet chin music, causing Jericho to free fall back to the floor in a great spot. Sean drags Jericho back inside, but can only get two. He hits a flying elbow and patiently loads up Sweet Chin music, but Jericho's slow to get up. He's wobbling around. Sean finally goes to strike, but Jericho pops up with a code breaker, which is well done. King is doing a nice job here with the story. Says that Jericho might have gone goose and gander on Sean, just kind of faking him out. Sean recovers first and hooks a cross face, but Jericho gets to the ropes after ta- almost tapping. That was a really great near tap. Jericho fights up and hangs Sean across the top rope, goes for a lion salt, but Sean gets the knees up. Jericho knew it, though. He dodges it, goes to the walls, but Sean counters to inside cradle and steals the win. We wrap up with a very hesitant handshake and applause from Jericho. And I thought this was tremendous stuff, layering in the injury story across it all. All the mind games flowing from two guys that's trying to win the match. Everything was smooth and well worked. It made sense. The counters were good down the stretch. This feud is cooking, and this match pushes us along smartly. Uh, Jericho is back as well, like resoundingly so. Uh, Dave, I went four stars on this. This is just a joy to watch. Um, I absolutely loved this match. Um, I've got to agree with you there. Jericho is really starting to cook here. Um, always felt that after he came back um, the, at the end of the previous year, he's he he. He was doing okay, but never really seemed to have anything to really sink his teeth into, any really good stories to sink his teeth into. And he really is here, and it really seems to be a massive step up for him as a performer and as a worker. And I just – I think it was sensational because throughout the match, you could see his facial expressions and his body language really read the – 
to him how important this match was, but also the frustration he was he was finding at at not being able to put um, Sean away, and it, it was just a real impressive moment. I loved uh, the the moment when he when he sort of avoided the avoided the super kick and 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 was alert to what was going on the psychology there i really liked the super kick on the apron when jericho jumped off you know sort of did the jump up on the ropes and was as making the you know jumps down towards sean who was standing on the apron and sean dropped him with a with a great looking super kick there and and it was a really awesome near fall because he had to sort of get him back in the ring and Jericho sort of dead weighted himself to sort of really sell it. So it was it was a massive, massive um, uh, step up by uh, Jericho. Sean, obviously, Sean, he can always uh, do hold up his end of the bargain. But um, some great counter moves, some great counter wrestling, and that handshake spot at the end was just fantastic. So I think I, I don't know if I said it, but I went four and a half on this. There was there was no slow spots. It was great action, great storytelling, and yeah, a real real move in in the direction of Jericho's career. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, Dave. I gave it a four. Um, your time is uh, let's see, definitely double digits. Uh, it was uh, 15.56. Um, one thing about, I think this is why I've always been a huge Jericho fan. He, he's he's definitely a fanboy. He'll always be a fan at heart. And he knows deep down that if he was sitting, and a lot of wrestlers very rarely think this way. Chris Jericho always thinks that if he's in the crowd sitting in a seat, how good would I want this match to be for me as a fan? And I feel like that's how he wrestles. And he knows that when him and Sean are going to dance, it's going to be the best dance you'll see. Uh, so Jericho ups his game. And that means Sean, of course, ups his. And anytime Sean tries to up it even more, you know, you're going to get almost perfection. Uh, these guys know how to dance with each other. It's just, it's just like that. And the, and the fact that they've matured, you know, this isn't the same Sean Jericho we had in 2003 uh, when Jericho was still kind of a, you know, little immature and much younger, much more seasoned, but still kind of with that snarkiness and Sean, Sean, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, you're never going to get any bad out of him. Uh, it's obvious that, you know, more is going to come from these two. It just feels that way. Uh, this was a nice match. This is an incredible match, but you definitely feel like we're not finished here. So I'm look forward to what lies ahead. But the one thing I love about, about Chris Jericho is, he wrestles because as a, as a fan growing up, he wants the match to be as good as he would want it to be if he was sitting in the crowd and buying a ticket for it. And I always respect that about him. And that's what makes matches he's in, particularly ones with a guy like Sean, that much better than they than they would already be. Can I can I say, I think one of the things that really impressed me is you, you mentioned 2003, you mentioned WrestleMania. This match was so different from their WrestleMania mm -hmm. match. And that yes. Mania match yes, was point. one of the best yeah. matches on the show. Yep. And it would have been very easy to sort of just try and recreate that. But both guys really put together a really different match. And I think that's what stands out so much about Jericho and, and Sean's matches is they don't just rest on their laurels. Like you said, I think they think about if I was sitting there watching, if I'm a fan, what would I want to see? And they, they're recognizing we need to bring something different each time and, and makes, make it intriguing so that people keep wanting to come back. 
Right. Mm-hmm. All right. We see William Regal studying the outcome of this match and really pushing him as observing everything as the king. Todd Grisham was with Mickey James, who's got some bangs and poofier hair, which is a choice. Uh, Grish talks to, asks about Mickey's date with John Cena. She keeps it vague. JBL comes in and shoves her away and says he should get questions about Cena, not him. <clears throat> JBL bullies Grisham about being a trust fund baby and never being in a fight. Says he could beat Cena for 20 minutes despite the result. Cena's the one in the training room and threatens to beat up Grisham if he asks him any more dumb questions. We then get Cole and Foley hyping the mobile poll. They thank ZD Dada for the Judgment Day theme song. And that brings us to our next match, which has the women's title on the line. Mickey James taking on Melina and Beth Phoenix. Scott, how did we get to this point? Uh, well, uh, JR, uh, on the May 5th Raw, women's champion Mickey James pinned Beth Phoenix in a no-DQ lumberjill match with an inside cradle after Melina accidentally hit Phoenix with her boot. When Mickey moved out of the way the following week on May 12th, Mickey and Maria defeated Beth and Melina when Mickey pinned Melina with a neck breaker after Beth Phoenix walked out. So not much, uh, just very short, sweet to the point, uh, building up for this triple threat. Yeah, Mickey's driving the boat of the division. I think it's working well. <clears throat> Gives Beth someone to work with, despite the hair. Beth's present is on point. She <laughs> stalks out. JR talks up the ongoing splintering between Beth and Melina, which led to Melina attacking Beth, but getting brutalized against the lockers. A really good ooze from the crowd for Melina's split, and then a nice pop for Mickey. The overall experience and general quality is really improving as they focus more on the division's growth. Beth is awesome here, demanding Melina leave her ring. Melina kicks her to the floor, and we are off and running. Mickey and Melina have a good back-and-forth flurry until Beth causes Mickey to tumble outside and mows her down. Beth overpowers Melina, kicks her around, but Mickey's back. We get some cool reversals and flow. All three just countering various spots, ending with Mickey grabbing a rare naked choke on Beth. Melina takes over and slugs away, but Mickey snaps her to the mat. She keeps coming back. They end up on top. Beth comes over and takes Melina down with an electric chair, but Mickey follows her to the top rope that is press. Mickey wipes Beth out with a tight-seated dropkick that ends up back on top of Melina. Beth comes over and puts both girls on her shoulder and walks the ring and then collapses back. Just an amazing power display. Melina hits Beth with a neckbreaker, but Mickey grabs her with a DDT and picks up the win to retain her title. Really damn good match. Uh, the biggest plus is the increased pace, the speed and the smoothness for them, as opposed to most of the matches in the division. All three were tight. They're smart workers. Beth's power stuff is awesome. The backbreaker was a great spot. The finish is good, too, as Beth is protected, but Mickey rolls on as champion, and Beth can bitch at Molina some more. So, Scott, I went three and a quarter on this, which may be our highest-rated women's match, if not ever, at least in a while during this run. Uh, but I really, really dug this. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I actually went a little higher than you. I went three and a half, uh, simply because I think you saw at the moment uh, the three best women in the division all together in in one match. Uh, uh, let me see what uh, what they got for a uh, for a um, match length because they got a decent amount of time. Let's see, that's six fourteen. Not too bad. Uh, I mean, simply put, and I said this uh, on our last show, uh, what you're seeing is, in my opinion, the three best workers in the company at this moment, Mickey, Beth, and and Melina. Um, And best thing to do right now is just put them in the same match and let them go. And it was really tight, like like you said, just over six minutes. Keep it in. A lot of good reversals, a lot of crazy moves. Beth doing the double rack. It was just really good stuff and just... Uh, accentual, uh, 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 what's wrong? I'm not accentualizing, emphasizing 
uh, uh, their strengths. And Mickey is a good babyface champion. Um, she's good at the top of the card right now. Um, but I got to say, Dave, you know, and I've said this for a while here on the show since we've gone back into the timeline. Uh, the women's division has its ups and downs, but they do have some shining stars. And if you put them in one match together, uh, they look pretty good together. Uh, they do. This was this was a fantastic match. Fast paced. Um, no, no slow spots. It kept moving. I, I was trying to it really was an interesting case of a couple of different storylines because you had sort of the Beth Phoenix Molina animosity element going and I agree with um with JT with the whole right at the start of the match Beth sitting there saying get out of my ring you don't deserve to be here I really love that character work by Beth mm-hmm. because it really just sort of showed that animosity there and then on the other side Mickey James is the champ and she's just focused on winning She's just going to do whichever person I can beat, I'll do it and I'll take it. And uh, and everything she did was aimed at just trying to get herself in a position to to get a pinfall attempt or, or or get herself in a position to perhaps win the match. So Beth Beth's power was impressive. Uh, that that double backbreaker spot was just awesome, and and I think it really shows that you've got three women here with different elements that that I think that's what made this match work so well. Beth's power uh, was the power wrestler really emphasizing that. Mickey James is probably the 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 technical worker, the one who sort of can hold it together. And Molina was was moving quite quick and and sort of so each is each of their individual specialties came together to, to put a really nice looking match. And um, yeah, I, I agree. We talk all this time in about the the women's revolution and how it seems that everyone just sort of goes from sort of Paige and and Emma and and Charlotte and all that moving forward. But you know, Beth Phoenix, Mickey James, they they showed that hey, back in two thousand eight, there were some women who could work. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, it, and it's been a quick overhaul even from when we just started this. So we'll see how it continues to grow if they can get others in, uh, you know, in blocks up with them and moving forward with the division. Mm. Batista confronts Sean in the locker room, tells him he promised him he would hurt him if he was faking. He'll decide when and where, but it will happen. <laughs> Very chilling message for Batista. Yeah, uh, that was great. It was really well done. Uh, Cole and Foley break out the poll results with Undertaker taking 85% of the vote. Foley admits he doesn't know how to text. And that brings us to a video package for our next match. Yet again, we have the Undertaker taking on edge, but this time for the vacant world title, Scott. How do we get to this point? Yeah, uh, clearly needed to kind of switch things up here in some capacity. So on the May 2nd SmackDown, Vicky Guerrero was wheeled out onto the stage by Teddy Long alongside Edge. Say, uh... Uh, she indicated that The Undertaker had been stripped of the World Heavyweight Championship due to the number of people he injured with the Hell's Gate that was now banned. Uh, moments later, Vicky sent the great Kali to the ring to recover the title belt, with Taker then taking Kali down and locking the choke on as Kurt and Zack came out of the crowd, stole back the belt. After Kali began bleeding from the mouth, Taker released the hold and stared at Edge and Vicky as the show went off the air. Then on the May 9th SmackDown, Guerrero announced that The Undertaker would face the winner of a battle royal later in the night. The participants of the battle royal would be the winners of several singles matches throughout the night. Batista originally won the match by eliminating Big Show, but Vicky then appeared and said Edge had just been medically cleared to wrestle 
and will be part of the match as well. Edge eliminated Batista to get the title shot after the match. Lightning struck the title belt on display at the entrance before the container, which held it, went up in flames, and Taker's gong was sounded. There we go. And here we go again. This feud is Edge keeps chasing. He's getting title shots because he's running SmackDown as Kingpin. Kind of a silly angle to strip Taker, but I guess it plays into the power trip. Vicky has banned the triangle choke. A lot going on. Cole says the world champion has never been stripped until now. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I get, I mean, maybe I was hmm. trying to think, I mean, Diviasi, I guess technically was, but I don't know if that doesn't count as a reign. So I guess Cole could be right. Foley talks about edge has no bar for stooping low to get his title back. And he's confident as he comes out, usual chilly taker entrance. Foley talks us up being a battle of mind games. So the crowd is all in on taker who tosses edge hard to start. Taker works the arm. He kicks and slugs away, drags him around. Foley talks about the backlash match and ties that to this edge tries to slug back into control, but Taker shoves him hard off the apron into the barricade. He follows out edge who shoots him into the stairs and hits a baseball slide drop kick edge works through his offense, getting a near fall and trying to keep Taker grounded using his basic array of strikes and ground and pound offense. Cole and Foley are working overtime here to talk up the strategy and psychology. They really gelled into a nice team. Taker starts to hook the triangle, but the ref reminds him that it's banned. So he releases and Edge keeps control, but he tries old school, which Taker does not like, and he ends up crotching him on it. Taker mounts a comeback. He viciously chokes Sam's Edge into the corner, mows him down with a big boot. Ryder and Hawkins come out, and Edge rips off the buckle cover. Taker tries the last ride, but Edge slips free and hits an impaler for two. Taker recovers, slings Edge to the corner with a buckle bomb for two. Taker loads up a snake eyes and the exposed buckle, but Edge slips free and slugs away. Edge charges, but Taker dodges and now hits snake eyes on the steel. They keep trading blows until Taker finally throws Edge down with a huge choke slam for two. The crowd is all in now. They spill outside. They battle into the crowd with Taker slugging Edge down and sliding in to win the match by countout. Out comes Vicky Guerrero as the Edgeheads bring her out. Immediately, she cuts off the announcement to a huge heat. She can't even talk over the crowd. They're so rabid against her. She says the title can only be won by pin or submission and remains vacant. Taker tombstones at you a huge pop. The crowd heat here is insane. It's top-level stuff for a heel GM. Again, though, the match was just okay. It was well done. The chemistry just never gets there. It's I think it's Edge's offense. I don't know. Whenever Taker's on offense, things pick back up, and the back end go good, just like at Mania and Backlash. However, the fake-out finish was pretty shitty, and it really killed the hot end of the match. And on we go with the vacated title. The crowd not happy. It's good heat building, but it feels a little bit shitty. I think maybe just have Edge steal the belt. Uh, could have been okay, but it seems like they have no interest in him actually pinning Taker. So it just looks like a bitch. He's getting all these title matches, all, you know, seven people behind him, the GM running the show behind him, and he can't win the belt. Uh, three and a quarter for me, Dave. Uh, this just feels like they're not helping Edge at all with any of this, and he just continues to look like a loser. Uh, Dave, I'm not sure if you're still there. Scott, you want to go? I will go. looks like Dave's on, on mute. Uh, looks like he may have unmuted. But uh, while we wait for Dave, I'll give my comments. Um, yeah, uh, I went down another notch. I, the matches are slowly dipping by quarter point. Uh, mm-hmm. At Mania, I gave him three and a half. At Backlash, I gave him three and a quarter. And this one, I gave him a three. Uh, the matches are just slowly getting more and more predictable. Um, I, I don't want to say they're dull. But it's starting to get weird now that that Edge is looking is looking more and more like a punk, uh, like every he's getting every advantage possible. You know, the he, Taker isn't even champion right now, 
and he's still, you know, is taking belts away and having all these guys around him, and he still can't, he still can't win the title. Um, it, I, I don't. It's getting very frustrating uh, if you're a fan of Edge or if you're a fan of this feud. Um, I mean, literally, this feud goes all the way mm-hmm. back to last like May. It's almost a year because it goes back to when Edge cashed in uh, Kennedy's Money in the Bank a year mm-hmm. earlier, and you're getting to the point now. It's like, all right shit or get off the pot you know um but i mean again the match is fine they're both they both do the same like this this is the first time we've really seen the dance the same starts off slow and then picks up in the last um this match definitely was not as i don't think was as long as uh as the match they had uh um last week uh last month this one was well sixteen fifteen, so about three minutes less than it was um Last week or last month at uh, Backlash. Uh, but you're getting to the point now, Dave, if you're there, uh, where um, uh, Edge is like just I agree with Jr. Edge is slowly starting to it's starting to make no sense now that I mean, how many shots do you get before you finally win? Even if it's the frustrating, I can get how many of whatever I want. I'm running this show after a while. Even that's like kind of losing its. Logic, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, and I'm sorry about that before. Guys, I, I, I had accidentally left myself on mute, so I was talking away, happily talking away, and uh, no one could hear me. Um, I, um, look, I, I'm, I really struggled with this match. Um, I, I struggled a lot with, with Edge's offense. Like you said, it was 16 minutes, and I think if you took out all of Edge's punches and kicks, you probably would have been left with about a five-minute match. Um, because apart from his high spots, the spear and, and a couple of those other high spots, everything else from Edge was just punching and kicking and, and it just got to me in the end and I really struggled with it. I did like um, when Edge tripped Taker early in the match when he was going for old school and caused him to crotch himself and then we got the repeat spot in reverse when Taker did it to Edge later and I thought that, that was quite a quite a clever idea. Um, I must admit I did... I didn't mind the finish initially, the, the count-out. I thought, my goodness, they've done a count-out. Why would they do a count-out in a title match? And then it clicked in my head, hang on, th- there's no champion. It's a vacant title. So by, by winning by count-out, he still wins the match. He still would still be champion. Um, I actually didn't mind that concept. And then, of course, Vicky came out, the heat magnet, the she, and my goodness, is she a heat magnet? And at least her announcement made a little bit of sense. Um you know, you can only win in this way. And and, and you even had um, Michael Cole and, and Mick Foley sort of comment, but that's that's only when you're the champion and you can't lose it that way. But, you know, it made a little bit of sense, but I agree with you guys. It just, it just feels that all the cards are stacked in Edge's favour and he should, you know, he still can't win it. He still can't take make the most of it. And it's making him just look weak. Um, even the way he got the title shot, the the whole um, last minute insertion into the into the battle royal, when we all knew that was coming, that that just it reeks of all the help in the world, and, and he still can't get the job done. And yeah, you know, it, it was just as the match wore on, I got less and less invested in it because it just wasn't going anywhere. Um, and, and Edge's offense just didn't do it for me in this match. I felt Taker was really carrying a lot of this match. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, a, 
it was a, it was a unique way to finish it off, but to to continue this rivalry moving forward, just I'm not excited about that prospect. Well, we'll see if he gets another shot going forward. <laughs> Randy Orton cuts a promo staring at the camera, talking about his legendary title run, telling Triple H not to be judged, at least he be judged. MVP comes out to the ring off format. He's here to talk about being left off a marquee card despite being the highest paid entertainer in SmackDown history and the longest reigning U.S. champion in WWE history. It's bad business to leave him off. He's a top-tier talent and issues open challenge. Matt Hardy comes out, but he's in street clothes, and MVP's happy. He's going to get a U.S. title shot. But Hardy says he's already proven he's better than MVP, and he's not going to do it again. But someone else here will prove he's better, too. The crowd is completely on fire and even more hyped when Jeff Hardy comes dancing out. He had just returned a Raw from suspension, and he will take on MVP tonight in an impromptu match. Scott, any background you want to give on this one? Uh, on the May 12th Raw, Jeff Hardy uh, made the surprise return from the 60-day suspension. Uh, Hardy attempted to cut an in-ring promo uh, on how excited he was to be back and explain his absence when his mic got went out. William Regal appeared and said Hardy should have to be punished for his sins and then brought out Umaga as Hardy's opponent. Hardy won with the whisper in the wind after Umaga missed a backsplash in the corner. So pretty much it there. Jeff well, Hardy, Hardy dances out. And this looks like a banger on paper uh, as Hardy gets back on the floor after the suspension. Really altered his trajectory. He was ready, ready to take that leap. Cole reminds us this is Raw for SmackDown. Foley says, hey, we're SmackDown guys, but MVP's a jerk, so it's a tough spot. MVP attacks to the bell, but Hardy storms back and knifes through him. Foley says Hardy's house burned down a few weeks ago, and he lost everything, including all his memories. He's come through a lot of adversity. MVP comes back and takes down Hardy, grinds him to the mat. Hardy makes a brief comeback, but MVP knocks him outside, spikes Jeff's hands on the steps. Foley says when he was U.S. champion, MVP was so focused on not losing, he didn't wrestle to win, but now he has to. MVP works the arm with holes and kicks, really working the holes tightly, landing punches while doing it. He's always a smart worker. MVP gets a hammerlock body slam for two, goes back to a hold, really basic slow pace here. MVP cracks Hardy with a kick to the head and sends him back outside and shoves him to the railing. MVP goes back to the arm and is starting to feel like they're just filling time on a short card now. The crowd wakes up a bit as Hardy tries to rally, but it's all MVP work in the arm. Hardy counters a playmaker, comes hammering away, hits a slinging dropkick. Hardy goes up top, but misses a swanton. He dodges a charge, gets whisper in the wind, and picks up the win. Solid match, uh, a little boring, a lot of MVP limb work, which is well done, but it's tough at this point in the card for this. Hardy seems to be a little rusty after his layoff. All the momentum he had in January is gone. Uh, He has to work his way back up now. MVP scuffling suddenly as the Hardys have dominated him here in 2008. And it felt like a real time eater, Scott, to fill space on a light show. So I went two and a half. It was okay. Uh, definitely disappointing when you looked at it, what it could have been. Well, it's funny we talk about this match, uh, JR, because I mentioned uh, last month about how MVP almost fits better with Matt. And I kind of agree. Like, I gave this a two and a half. Uh I was not crazy about it. I, again, I, I feel like MVP didn't doesn't mesh well with the way Jeff Hardy works. Uh, 9.42, your match time, which I thought was a little, much longer than I f- felt. Um, yeah, again, MVP uh, is a good pound, is a good striker, and he has some you know good grinding moves, but Jeff doesn't wrestle like that. So Matt does. So you know Matt has the occasional high fly move, but it fits. And, and he has great chemistry with MVP. Jeff Hardy doesn't wrestle like that. So grinding Jeff Hardy down just bores the match to tears. And 
it showed here. And I'll be honest with you, I was I would not have had Jeff Hardy win this match. Uh, I think this is a bad spot for MVP. I think the last thing you want to do after losing the big match to Matt last month is to have him lose again to his brother who just came back. Uh, I would have had MVP either win this match or just not have this match at all, Dave. Uh, two and a half for me, and it, I agree with JR. It, it definitely was the definition of a filler match and felt very uninspiring. Yeah, it was It was very dull. It, it felt like a redo of the first match where MVP just dominated 90, 95% of the match, and then Jeff Hardy got sort of the win out of nowhere at the very end. It, it just felt like we were seeing the first match all over again, but without the heat that came with it. Mm-hmm. Um I actually felt that they really mis- miscast a couple of things in this match. I'm almost throwing on my through-the-looking-glass hat here. I don't know why they would have had Jeff Hardy on Raw the week before when they could have – like, it was the surprise entrance. Matt coming out and saying, I've got and, you know someone to wrestle you, and here's Jeff. I think it would have been great if it was the, the comeback. And then they should have right. Jeff come out and start fast. Like, he runs to the ring, and MVP just – puts him down and he's dominating from the beginning. I would have had Jeff start fast, that typical face getting the, the early heat and early early momentum and nearly getting a couple of near falls. Then MVP can slow it down and then have you come back. It, it just felt the match wasn't booked the way it should have been. And I agree with you in the end. I don't think, yeah, if you're going to have Jeff Hardy win the match, then why not do it the surprise entrant and, and get it done quick? as sort of like MVP wasn't ready for this and and he could do the whole the next week on SmackDown. Oh, I wasn't ready and you caught me out, but I'm prepared now and I'm, I can do it again. Um, yeah, I, I end up going two. I, I really struggled with this match because it just felt like we were just rehashing things that we'd seen before. Regal still pondering what's going on. Foley says he should be happier with his great luxury suite seat. And then we get a video package for our main event, which is Triple H defending his championship against our old friend Randy Orton. And Scott, how did we get here? Uh, well, JR, on the April 28th Raw, the night after Backlash, Triple H cut a promo regarding his return from injury in August and ending the age of Orton until he was interrupted uh, by Randy Orton. Orton complained the odds were against him at Backlash and said he would get his rematch at Judgment Day here. When Orton refused to leave the ring, Triple H hit him with the mic and knocked him to the floor. Orton then demanded the title shot later in the show instead of at the pay-per-view. The two fought to a no contest to close the show. Triple H had Orton in the Crippler crossface when William Regal was shown in the director's truck. He was complaining about how the fans didn't deserve to see the ending of the match because of how they had disrespected him earlier in the show. Regal assaulted the director until he gave in to Regal's demands to take the show off the air. In footage shot exclusively for WWE Home Video. Missed those days. Uh, Regal appeared two minutes after the show went off the air and told the fans he would not be disrespected and stopped the bout after the champion hit a spine buster on Orton. Triple H attacked Orton on the ramp, took him back to the ring, and dropped him with the pedigree. And then the following week, on May 5th, Regal announced that the match here at Judgment Day for the title would be inside a steel cage. So there we go. Time to play the game! Mm-hmm. 
All right, big spot for Randy Orton as he has a ton of momentum as champion during his red-hot reign, but now he's back challenging. Can he still feel like he's a top-level guy without the belt, a true challenger? Also, we're right back to the old Triple H dominating, or is he going to carry the vibe he has had since he's returned? Cage gimmick adds, adds a little excitement. Orton saunters out his brand-new theme song, by the way, as well, of course. Here he mm-hmm. voices. He's confident vibe on displays. He slinks into the cage. The song alone adds a feeling of maturity to him. You get the usual intense Triple H entrance, the belt back on his waist. Orton dives for the door off the bell. We are off and running as they trade heavy strikes to get it heated up. Hunter uses the cage as his offense. Orton just keeps trying to break for the exit where he can. Orton's lip is busted open. He's locked in as he slings Triple H to the cage. All strikes and cage shots here, but well done with Snap. Another methodically paced match tonight, as we haven't had a ton of variance overall emotion to the card. Just a lot of fighting. Orton tries to hook and grind the champion to wear him down. Tries to escape all through this one. Hunter dodges a knee drop, grabs a figure four. Orton breaks out and tries an RKO, but Hunter blocks and tries a pedigree. Orton counters out of that with a backdrop. Tries to escape through the door. He's able to grab a chair, but Hunter drags him back in. Hunter blocks the chair, runs through some offense, but he can't finish. Hunter grabs a chair, but Orton goes low and smacks him with the chair and DDTs him on it for two in a nice-looking spot. Orton sets up an RKO on an open chair, but Hunter blocks and sends Orton to the chair with a drop to hold. Orton recovers, starts to scale the cage, but Hunter catches up to him. They battle up top until Orton collapses back, and Hunter pulls himself to the top of the cage. Orton sprints up and grabs him. They trade shots some more until Hunter ends up back inside, too. Orton now tries to escape, but Hunter drags him back in. They fight some more on the top rope. Good feel of desperation and exhaustion here. Orton shoves Hunter down and scales over to the other side of the cage, but Hunter rushes over and pulls him back in. At one point, Orton drops his hands, and Hunter literally just dangles him by the neck but in a chokehold, which looked awesome. They get back inside and slug away some more until Hunter gets a spine buster. Orton counters a pedigree and flips Hunter onto a chair. Orton whiffs on the punt. Hunter cracks it with a chair and finishes the match with a pedigree to a huge pop. And this one got super fun toward the end. The pace really picked up after the sluggish beginning. They really won the crowd back. The end stretch was awesome. It was well done. It was a classic style cage match with a lot of hard brawling and cage shots. Good heat as well. Orton remains on fire. He feels like a real player. Hunter had to really grind out the win. It was a fun main event to a solid night of action. We'll see where Orton goes from here, Dave. I ended up going four stars on this match. I really, really liked it. I thought it was a very sharp cage match, and Hunter continues to impress. Yeah, I um, I really enjoyed it too. I, You mentioned that it was a bit slow at the start, but while it wasn't moving quick, it was it was brutal hard shots. And mm-hmm. what a cage match should be. This is this is what – this story made sense for what the, the arena they were in. Um, I really liked when um, they were just uh, – when Norton was just banging uh, Triple H against the, the back of his head against the cage multiple times. It really looked vicious. It, it was – it was hard fought, um, and then slowly the pace picks up as they're trying to, you know, get I guess get more and more desperate to to get the win. Um, I really liked you. You mentioned that the dangling spot over the edge of the cage. I really liked that too. I thought that was um, that was a really good thing because you always watch a cage match and you wonder why don't they just when they're being pulled back in, why don't they just let go of their body weight mm-hmm. and and fall down to the outside? And and Orton did it. So I really like the logic in there and that, you know, Hunter had to bring him back in. The logic went out the window right at the beginning of the match when the referee was checking both men for boots and trunks if they might have been carrying any foreign objects. And I'm thinking it's a cage match. It doesn't matter if they've got foreign objects. They can use them left and right. It's no DQ. 
Um, and then the ref trying to break the, you know, break the count when Hunter had the figure four and Orton got to the ropes. And even, even Cole sort of said, why is he asking him to do that? So I uh, sorry, JR asked why are they asking him to do that? So a couple of times the referee sort of got in the way of what was happening, but I, I enjoyed the match. I always have felt I really like Hunter in this since he's done this face run. He really is putting on some good matches. Um, he really, it, he, he, there's something about this run that he's giving to the guys that he's, he's facing. And while he's winning these matches, it's not coming across in that over the top way that his heel run did back in 03. So I'm really enjoying Hunter as the champion and, and he keeps the belt here and he keeps going and uh, yeah, I, it was a good match. 21, 12, uh, your match time. Uh, I gave this four stars too. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I love watching triple H in a cage match. He seems, you know, he's got that kind of old school thinking. So they always come off. Well, Orton is, as we've said, every pretty much every show, Jr. Uh, since we've come back to the timeline that, he just gets it now. Like, he understands how these matches need to be. He understands how uh, the story takes a turn for him, and now he's the one chasing instead of the one bobbing and weaving. Triple H is a babyface, uh, is not bobbing and weaving. He's directly going at him. Uh, and I just love steel cage violence. I, mean, I always have. Um, and it was a good match. The crowd was really into it. Uh, Triple H winning at the end got a pretty good pop. Um, yeah, I, I really like, I actually liked this match better than when the two were by themselves at the end of backlash. I, I thought this was better. Um, not just for being in a cage. I just thought it was better. Um, does this hurt Orton? No, not at all. Orton's a player now. He's, he's earned it the last year. Um, it's just a question of, you know, you don't want him to keep losing to, to triple H. So, uh, time will tell how this goes the next several months. Um, over the summer as to what they plan to do with uh, Orton um, and keep him relevant mm -hmm. uh, at the top of the card. Not easy, but uh, yeah, time will tell. But I enjoyed the match a lot. I had a lot of fun seeing them brawl in the in the uh, in the uh, in the cage and uh, a big win for Triple H. But I thought Orton looked fine. Good brawl. Enjoyed it. All right. That'll wrap up the show. Why don't we get into our awards? Close things out. Uh, MVP of the night. Even though he lost, I went with Chris Jericho. Like I said, he was so awesome in that match. Uh, it really played into the whole story. He's back. He looked great. And to me, he was the biggest star of the night. Yeah, I agree with that. He he His character work through that whole match was fantastic. And, and it was... He he really made. I mean, Michaels works well, but Jericho made that match uh, mm -hmm. great. So yeah, he's my MVP. Yeah, I agree. I, like I said, he knew how to make the match with Sean. Uh, get the crowd soaked in. All right, LVP action with Edge. Um, I I, don't, I just think he looked like a chump. He has all this favor stacked his way, and he still they can't even give him like a fake way. I don't know. It just it felt he just felt like. They're just making him look like a goof. Like, he needs to get out of this thing with Taker. <laughs> or did he just see something different? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, actually. I'm another one with Edge. Um, everything that you said and the fact that all he seemed to do was punch and kick through the match. So, no, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an Edge for least valuable. Okay. Uh, for best match, even though I had it tied at four stars of the main event, I'm going with Michael's Jericho. I, I think it was the best match of the night. Yep. Uh, let me see here. I, I mean, I have it tied with Triple H Orton, uh, four stars apiece, but I'll give the edge to Michael's Jericho just on the, based on the storytelling. Yeah. All right. Worst match. I'm with the tag punk and Kane versus Miz and Morrison. I went MVP versus Jeff Hardy. I just, that just did not do it for me. Uh, you're going to think I'm nuts. I'm going to go with Cena JBL. I actually expected more out of this match and it disappointed me. Yeah, I don't think that's that crazy. It's not that far off. Hmm. All right. Best moment. I went with, uh, I actually went with Beth's double backbreaker. I, th- I thought that looked awesome. Uh, it did it look super awesome. unique. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I like that too. Yeah, it was it was the spot of the night. Yeah. All right, surprise of the night. I went with. I don't know if you call this a surprise, but to me, it was Vicky's heat. <laughs> it was like it caught me completely off guard. It was like old school, top level heel. Like that crowd was just insane for her. Yeah, I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Yeah, I, I I'd agree with that too. I, I think that was um. I just the fact she could not get started every time mm-hmm. she tried, the crowd just kept it going. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay. All right. And our final grade, <clears throat> even though I had matches here score higher than last month, Scott, with uh, Backlash on our last episode, I went with a six then. I only went six and a half this time. I, I found this one to be slightly better. I mentioned it during the main event, but I felt like there was a real lack of variance on this card. Uh, everything felt very similar, just like straight map-based, ground-and-pound type offense. It started with Cena JBL right through the main event. And while there was variants of it, um, and, and some of the matches are better than others, it felt like we didn't get the real... Uh, I don't want to call it circus flavor, but like we didn't get the something for everyone in this card. It, just, it felt right down the middle. Every match felt the same to me on this show. Um, just, so I think that hurt it. And then, again, like match... Quality-wise, it definitely seems like it should finish a little bit higher, but something just felt a little off on this one for me. But still a very good show. I had two four-star matches, and I really liked the women's match. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the rest just you know, felt flat. I feel like they wasted a real hot crowd by not delivering. And then the edge-taker match really hurt it for me. That dragged things down a bit. Mm-hmm. But still, a very good show. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm going to grade this this show higher because I just had higher grades, but I agree. I'm going to give this, I gave back, I gave backlash a six. I'm going to give this six and a half, um, slightly better, but I do agree that I, it did feel like every match kind of felt the same, but Michael's Jericho just amped the thing up. Uh, I feel like that balanced out for me. What was a disappointing, uh, JBL Cena opener. Uh, I did really like triple H for and I thought that was a great cage match. Um, the edge taker stuff is starting to get a little old. Um, but I think oh, top to bottom, I think the in-ring was really good, but it did feel a little a little formulaic. But six and a half for me. Slightly better than, than Backlash, Dave. Um, I'm going to bring about the three-peat. I went six and a half as well. Um, the the main event, the, main, the cage match and the Jericho-Michaels match just were out of this world sensational but the rest of the card just felt ho-hum um it was just 
very average outside of those two matches. So I think those two matches really bring it up. Mm-hmm. Um, the women, the women's match was 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 was, was good too, but the, you know, the, the, you've got half the card was was a little bit of a slog to get through at times. Agreed. Mm. All right, so that'll do it for us here tonight. Uh, that'll wrap up just from day away. Scott will be back in two weeks' time with One Night Stand 2008 mm-hmm. as we continue to move through the summer. And until then, Dave, I want to say thank you. Great to have you on as well. We'll have you back soon. I want to thank everyone for listening and take care. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Peace.